0: Good morning again. This morning we finished this latest installment of Grace Stories. These are the raw, authentic, real-life, down-to-earth stories shared by members of the GRC family. And one of, the, uh, one of the reasons I most love these stories in the life of our church, we've been doing these um, in three sets of three twice a year for the last three years, is not only that they have this incredibly powerful impact on shaping the gospel culture of our church, but there's also this common temptation, especially here in the metro New York area, to pretend that life is grand, it's problem-free, relationships are harmonious, spirituality, spirituality is nicely aligned, or at least to there's a temptation to keep up that appearance. Um, perhaps more so within the walls of the church, sadly, than outside. But these courageous stories keep us grounded in reality. None of us has it all together, we're reminded. And you might be envious of another person sitting next to you or in the row behind you because of their beauty or their financial comfort or their nice family or whatever circumstances you might observe from the outside and you might fail to realize that they are as broken and in need of grace as you are. We're not after comparison. What we're after is humility in Christ, to recognize that in my sin I am nothing but in Christ, through faith in him, I am and I have everything. Uh, The German pastor and Nazi resistance leader Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, Life Together. He said... The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is discovered among the righteous, so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are all sinners. Well, this morning we have the privilege of having Debbie Voigt come to share her lifelong struggle, not to conceal it. And her story will point us to glimpses, at least, of how God has brought healing to her through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Debbie.
1: When I was born in Wheeling, Illinois, my mother was 17 and my father 18. 18. My mother was a pretty Midwestern girl with a bright smile, a kind heart, and a trusting nature. My father was her opposite, a salesman with a type A personality, outgoing, driven, and ambitious. In many ways, my parents were amazingly mismatched, and I picked up on the tension from a very young age. Both were, no doubt, unprepared and ill-equipped to deal with the demanding realities and messiness of being teenage parents. My earliest memory is from age three. It's a hazy memory, standing next to my baby brother's crib, my mom tearfully and furiously packing a suitcase. My father stood by, the guilt of his indiscretion and realization that he was close to using his family, losing his family, written on his face. This would not be the last time my parents separated. Through all these difficulties, my family put on a happy all-American face. We were conservative Southern Baptists and were always involved in church life, Sunday school, pioneer girls, and most exciting for me, singing in the choir. From outside, we appeared to be the perfect family, but the truth is that my home was one full of fear, that Daddy would leave, that Mommy's heart would break, that our Our family was hanging on by a thread. No one knew pride was important to my father. Keeping one's pride in check was a big deal, both at church and at our home. His family crest would have included the proverb, pride goeth before a fall. I began my relationship with Jesus as a child. When Good Friday and Easter came around, I'd cry, thinking of what Jesus did to save me. I had seen people born again on Sundays when the minister called people forward and we all sang, Just as I am. Just as I am without one plea. But that his blood was shed for me. I knew I wanted to be saved. My Sunday school teacher prayed with me and I accepted Christ into my young heart. I discovered my voice and ability to communicate with an audience while singing in church. Little did I know that those first hymns would lead to a career singing around the world in all the major opera houses. From a distance, I'm sure I appeared to have the world on a string. But for one major problem, that fear I'd learned as a child led to a deep insecurity and lack of self-esteem. Why am I not satisfied with this career and the accolades that accompany it? Why do I feel so terribly alone? My first coping mechanism was food. I went from a fairly robust teenager to morbid obesity, tipping the scales at 335 pounds. By this time, my marriage had failed, and one bad relationship after another had only added to the emptiness I felt. As I rode the roller coaster of an all-consuming career, I wondered what had happened to the little girl who had been filled with the Holy Spirit. The girl who sang with conviction, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than sparrows. But fall to the ground, I did. My life with what would become a disease called alcoholism began. Slowly but surely, my every action would revolve around the next drink. My life became a series of bottoms, complete blackouts from which I'd awaken with no idea what had happened the night before. What did I say? What did I do? madly scrambling for my phone to see if I'd sent drunken texts to anyone, and all too often I had. Trying to figure out where the bruises on my body had come from. Alcohol had me in its grasp. It was running my life. 31 days after checking into rehab, I was sure I would never have another drink. A year and three months later, I relapsed. My thirst was unquenchable. But his eye is on the sparrow. 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen." since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I could no longer tolerate the spiritual bankruptcy that had me waking up every morning in despair. My heart craved acceptance, belonging, security, affirmation of personal value that doesn't depend on flawed humans behaving as they should, whether that be parents or spouse or friends. I was looking in all the wrong places, food and alcohol, but I can only find that kind of unconditional love from God the Father through Jesus. I already had the reality of his promises of acceptance, belonging, security, which involves freedom from fear, an identity that cannot be lost. One big step toward addressing my addiction was coming to a point where I could admit that I am powerless over alcohol. I am in no way cured of alcoholism. 12-step programs tell me a daily reprieve is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Learning to put God's will for my life first. Thy will, not my will. And so I found myself at Celebrate Recovery. There I find a safe place to share what has happened in my life with women who have the same hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Women who love the Lord and who I have come to believe love me too. Together we find our way back to the one who never leaves us, the Father who loves us unconditionally, and the healing work of Jesus Christ. He has shown his light into my heart. Those moments of despair are gone. When I close my eyes at night, I rest easy, knowing that his promises do satisfy the cravings of every human heart. His love does satisfy the desires and needs of a little girl's heart.
2: Jesus loves me, this I know.
0: You made my wife cry.
2: Oh, good. But <clears throat> and... <laughs>
0: Would you bow with me as I pray? Lord, we know that you have never ceased to look down upon Debbie in tender compassion, because you are Abba Father. But we know that you've done much more than just look down and keep your eye on her. You have cared for her. You have worked every detail in her life and the big story that we only see because you re- revealed it to us in Scripture. That. Overshadows the little stories, the painful details, the bumps and bruises, the big stories that you are making all things new. You are making her more like Jesus. You are bringing purity to her heart because of the blood of Jesus. And we give you praise for that work. And we give you praise that Debbie can stand in front of everyone and share of the pain, but point to the healing that comes through Jesus. Continue to do that, Lord. Continue to draw her to yourself. Give her strength for the daily battle. Show her that you truly and completely satisfy. pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Over the years, I've shared a handful of quotes from an author named Ed Welch in his book called Addictions. And I share that background because otherwise you might be tempted to think that I go to that book because Debbie's story includes her battle with alcoholism. But too often people use or hear that word addiction and believe it only applies to those people. Those people who are really bad. They're out of control. They've they've lost it. They're especially messed up, and we fail to realize that there's a very relevant application to our own lives. The quote that I'm going to share is from the preface of the book, which helps us to realize how universally relevant it very well may be. Welch says, the basic theology for addictions is that the root problem goes deeper than our genetic makeup. Addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. Will we worship ourselves and our own desires, or will we worship the true God? Debbie shared that at one point in her life when things were going very well, she was surprised to find herself thinking, why am I not satisfied? She related it to her struggles that continued with insecurity and self-esteem stemming from her childhood despite her world-class singing career despite the, um, the book, and the tour, and the CDs, and the critical acclaim, and uh, the Wikipedia page that pops up this long on the Internet. Why am I not satisfied? It's a question that has to do with unfulfilled desires. Welch also writes this. Addicts feel as if they are trapped and out of control. They feel desperate, hunger, and thirst for Something. They feel like they are in bondage. Something or someone other than the living God controls them, and the controlling object tells them how to live, think, and feel. Did you hear that blunt statement that she shared in the depths of her relapse? My thirst was unquenchable, she said. Unsatisfiable desire. Desperate hunger and thirst for something which led to desperate behavior, desperate decision-making, and rationality out the window. She also said, my every action would revolve around the next drink. Alcohol had me in its grasp. It's the language of bondage, of control, of a master-servant kind of relationship. Here's the irony that we can't miss. We are designed perfectly by God to be in a master-servant relationship. Modern people don't like that. You know, I'm not going to be mastered by anybody. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. But in God's perfect design, we are created to be most fulfilled, most secure, most joy-filled when he is our master and we are his servants. And his master heart is unlike any other in overabundant generosity and mercy and compassion, desiring our best, our fullest humanity, satisfied only in this proper relationship with him. But when it comes to a God substitute, an idol, the Bible calls it, our minds and hearts say, must serve the idol deceived into thinking that what we most need in that moment can come from it or that person or the circumstance. If addiction is truly a disorder of worship, a battle between giving our own desires greatest worth or giving God's perfect will and God himself greatest worth in worship, worship, the question then applies to every one of us. It's not relegated to the especially messed up people. It, it, it applies to every one of us. And, and further, lest you think that there's any kind of chasm between Debbie's struggle and your own particular one, consider these diagnostic questions that might help you to begin to look inwardly. Do you ever feel like there's something missing in life? A void? A vacuum? How do you go about filling that void? you might not even connect your behavior, your filling behavior with the void itself. Maybe it's constant spending that gives you a quick hit and you feel uh, alive for a moment or, or certain pleasures that give you that momentary vitality. What stresses you out? What leads to anxiety? What gives you depressive episodes and how do you try to pull yourself out of it? What gives you relief? Maybe you're a perfectly functional alcoholic. You don't think there's anything wrong. Or maybe your compulsion is picking up that eye device every few minutes and having to check Facebook, having to see what else is going on in everyone else's lives. And the only way to find out is to fast, very biblical spiritual discipline. Not necessarily from food, although that may be it in your life, that compulsion. But fast by not touching a drop of alcohol for a couple of weeks, fast by not checking social media. And you may very well find that the mental, physical, emotional compulsion that you feel to engage in that behavior is beginning to show you that you too have a worship disorder. You give too much worth and time and attention to this part of your life, thinking that somehow, subconsciously, It will bring you fulfillment when it only enslaves. It exerts control as a false master. What or whom do you really love? What captures your imagination? What makes you sing, draw, write poetry, dance? What do you daydream about, chat excitedly about? There's a good chance that whatever it is that occupies your mind and has you evangelistically sharing it with other people is an idol, is a God substitute. You find worth and affirmation from this thing or this person and it makes you feel alive, but unless it's rooted in God himself, it will disappoint. It will destroy you from the inside and it will enslave you. Addiction is a disorder of worship. Addiction is a word that applies to every one of us. Whatever you consider most worthy of your time and resources, finances, and affections, is that God's substitute. And the only question is, do you have a little addiction or a big addiction? Do you have an addiction that other people don't necessarily notice because it's socially acceptable, or do you have one that has people whispering about the problem and hoping that you get the help that you need? There's not much difference at the end of the day. Next week, we're going to look back to the book of Acts in the New Testament, the account of the first century church, We've been away for a couple of months because of Advent and then grace stories. But we'll get back to it and we'll see yet again as the Apostle Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus for the first time, we will see gospel transformation happening, not just in the city but in the region through the, the changing of many lives. And um, I've mentioned before that I've heard and I've read people say these kinds of things about the book of Acts. You know, if only we could get back to being the kind of church that we see in the book of Acts, then everything would be all better. But that implies that following the right recipe, doing the right things, checking off the right boxes can lead to that kind of transformation when the book of Acts shows us revival after revival happening across the, uh, the known world as the Holy Spirit moves and produces this kind of transformation. I'm not even sure, then, we know what revival is. If we think we could just do the right things and these results would happen. Because revival is not when everyone else out there finds Jesus and gets with the program and joins the team, and that makes everything all better, right? The church grows, might include that kind of effect in revival, but revival is more centrally about you becoming single-minded in your understanding as you look in the spiritual mirror that I am a sinner, I am in desperate need of salvation. My heart is blacker than I would ever realize. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's primary work is not letting you do signs and wonders. The Spirit's primary work is helping you see your desperate need of a Savior and that He is Jesus, the Risen One. That's what revival does in you. And revival cultivates in you a hunger for more of the Spirit, which leads to more repentance, which leads to greater trust in all the promises of God. Revival means everything else in life becomes secondary. Chit-chat becomes about Jesus and the Word of God. Your time and attention and resources and finances are applied toward the greatest cause the world has ever known, which is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And revival means the Spirit happens to be doing the same thing in many people around you so that families are changed. The workplace has changed. The neighborhoods are changed. The schools, the office, the the marketplace becomes more and more positively infected with spirit-filled people who are demonstrating this gospel humility. I am nothing, but Jesus is everything. That's revival. Do you ever pray for that? Do you even want it? given this description that I've painted, that everything is about Jesus. To the extent that we don't taste revival like that, anything less than the radical response of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a result of a worship disorder, a little or big addiction. Something or someone other than the true God who has revealed himself through the Son Jesus has a hold on our hearts, is exerting this A bondage kind of impact which leads us which holds us back from sacrificially giving everything back to God which leads us to chase after people, things, and circumstances that we think will satisfy but will disappoint and will only enslave could you see how merciful it would be for God to pull the rug out from under you to help you see these things as a precursor to revival, to use suffering to focus our gaze away from the stuff and circumstances of this world and to look longingly for what only Jesus can bring? Could you see God being merciful in that way? In um, giving someone a taste of the best this world has to offer. World-class talent. The biggest stages in every global city around the world and then to help her see more clearly than ever before how empty she still is because Jesus is on the periphery, outside, waiting to be let back in. Let back in. Can you see how, how loving it would be for God to let you hit rock bottom? Or, or maybe simply to enable you to see more clearly and then to grieve the destructive nature of your sinful heart so that you can begin to taste healing. In his spiritual autobiography titled A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Auken tells the story of his love affair with his wife who uh, he nicknamed Davy. They ended up studying at Oxford in their 30s where they met a guy named C.S. Lewis. And his personal ministry to Sheldon and Davy led them to conversion uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. Shortly after, that wonderful development ended up cultivating jealousy on Sheldon's part toward God because he began to realize as his wife was growing by leaps and bounds faster than he was spiritually that he was no longer the primary love in her life. God was. And it just about ruined him. Shortly after, sadly, she contracted a terminal disease and died uh, leaving him uh, broken emotionally. Only after her death, helped by letters written to him by C.S. Lewis, does Sheldon discover the meaning of a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. It's quite the phrase, a severe mercy. I, I commend that book to any, anyone. It- it's-, it's quite amazing. And-, and he learned that her death... Had these results, it brought me as nothing else could to know and end my jealousy of God. It saved her faith from assault, and it saved our love from perishing. She had passed, but he was basically saying their love could become more alive than ever before if it was rooted in this divine love of God for each of them through Jesus. Davy's tragic death was a severe mercy. Severe, difficult, tragic mercy because it brought about good. God used that to keep Sheldon in his love. God used that to save Sheldon from the idol, the God substitute of, yes, even his wife's uh, beautiful, marvelous human love that he had made ultimate but was never intended to complete and satisfy Because no one and nothing other than Mm -hmm. God himself and his perfect promises can satisfy. Mm -hmm. Debbie Debbie wisely said, I am in no way cured. Can you say that about your own life? (laughs) Whatever your brokenness is, your idol set up, your God substitutes, I am in no way cured. I, I continue to battle them. I give in far too often. Why? It's a lifelong struggle uh, of truth. Because sin is out to deceive us to try to convince us that the idol is what we long for, is what will complete us, is what will satisfy. And the lifelong battle is what will satisfy my powerful desires? Just one more drink? Just one more rung on the ladder of success? Just one more person to impress? or everything that God has already given me, accessed through faith in Jesus Christ, which includes status that can never change, secure identity as a beloved son or daughter of the living God, declared to be an heir, promised an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, given freedom from shame and guilt, of anything I've ever done. I came across a blog entry in closing, which was really a rant, criticizing Van Auken's book. And the author said this, the idea that God would take a beautiful young life so that Sheldon Van Auken could be a good Christian is repulsive. He twists God's intent a bit. He misunderstands what what, uh, um, severe mercy means, but can't we relate to that to some extent? And to the extent that we resonate with this rant against the severe mercy and the providence of God in Sheldon's life, I mean, nobody made Sheldon write that, you know, he saw this as a good result. God, God showed it to him, and he was able to, to bow the knee to this reality. But what, what makes this resonate, at least to some extent in our hearts and minds, is the reality that we still lack a um, clear gaze, focus, all-consuming passion for, for what God has provided to us and promised us in eternity. And we still give a little bit too much attention, a little bit too uh, big a piece of our heart to the things of this world, the here and now. Here's what we need. A little more of what God enabled the Apostle Paul to say. Philippians chapter 3. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Can you say that? Could you imagine saying I'm one of the most accomplished sopranists of this generation I've reached the pinnacle of what I have always dreamed about from those first years singing in my church choir. And God has shown me in a severe mercy, it's garbage. Not to say the career is worthless, not to say she shouldn't keep singing, but compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ who is everything, everything else pales in comparison. May that be our spiritual clarity, that we would lay down our idols and see that they are nothing, garbage, but Jesus is everything. Let's pray. Lord, we tremble to pray for severe mercies in our lives. We tremble as to what that might mean, what pain that might require. But Lord, if we want true treasure, Help us to pray that prayer. That you would strip away that which prevents us from seeing Jesus as our all in all. That you would be as gentle as possible, but as forceful as necessary, that we might taste ultimate fulfillment in Christ and lay down everything else and see it as garbage. We pray in Jesus'
2: name. Amen.